GP-led secondaries, also known as continuation funds, are garnering interest from a greater number of GPs and LPs amidst a market in which sponsors are looking for creative ways to manage their portfolios and their LPs' cash. What are the potential conflicts and structuring issues here? How is the prevalence of the GP-led secondaries market linked to the primary fundraising landscape? And are GP-led secondaries here to stay as a viable exit option and liquidity solution? We discuss all this and more in today's episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome to this new episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. I'm Harriet Matthews, Head of Funds Coverage at Unquote Emerge Market, and I'll be your host today. It's been a little while since we've had an episode with insights from both our guest interviewees and our editorial team, and today we'll be exploring the topic of GP-led secondaries in depth with the help of insights from both of these groups. GP-led secondaries have been undergoing a widely acknowledged transition from a solution for the problem companies of funds whose time is running out to a broadly accepted liquidity solution and a means to back the winners in a private equity portfolio. There's a lot to explore on this topic, including the potential conflicts and challenges of structuring these deals. We're going to hear about some of these themes from Ed Ford and Sasha Gofton-Salmond, both of whom are partners at law firm Travis Smith. Before we do that, though, I'm delighted to say that today I'm joined by Rachel Lewis, private equity reporter and healthcare sector expert at Unquote Emerger Market. Rachel, welcome to the podcast and thanks very much for joining me for this episode. Hi, Harriet. Yeah, really looking forward to be here to talk about GP-led secondaries today. Absolutely. Now, I know you've been looking into private equity buyouts and exits to date in 2022. And I was wondering if you could maybe place the buzz around GP-leds in this context, so in the context of the current M&A market for private equity. Sure thing. So 2022 so far has been you know, a really interesting year for M&A. It's no secret that transactions across the board are down. We've seen about a 5% drop in EMEA in the year to date, with a kind of particular plummet in the second quarter. But there's one particular dynamic behind this drop, which is really interesting, and that's that we've seen a huge drop-off in actual exits from private equity firms. So sponsors made exits worth around 82 billion euros so far this year, which is obviously a very high number. But that's actually nearly down a quarter on an albeit record-breaking 2021, and that's according to data from Dealogic. So that really, you know, begs the question of what's happening to these portfolio companies that aren't being sold. So we've seen the private equity firms, you know, with nice clean funds that are kind of midway through the fund appear to be holding on a little longer, you know, returning properly to a four to six year holding window. But there are some those, you know, at the tail end of a fund that need to close. And that's kind of where we've seen a fair amount of these GP led secondaries pop up. Mm, interesting. So it's very much related to the current macro situation as well. Although at the same time, I imagine GPs are making the argument that the reason for these deals is not just that they can't sell the assets. It's also that there is a reason to hold on to them for, for longer and, and take advantage of the opportunities. Can you maybe give a few examples of the kind of rationale behind deals you're seeing, um, you know, when it comes to growth, when it comes to sort of the, the fun liquidity solutions that are quite kind of commonly known in the, the GP-led world? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And there's obviously there's always a little bit of a, a PR spin on these kinds of deals. So GPs love to talk about how, you know, it's to hold on to the best assets in class. 
And there's still a lot of, of growth case as well, which, you know, in some instances, it's definitely true. So there's a particular one, um, so there's a sponsor called Ufanel, which is based out in the DAC region, and it put two of its assets, a dermatology clinic called Corias and a veterinary asset called Altano into AGP-led secondary. And at the time, there was a lot of talk in the market about how this would lead to, you know, new growth and kind of M&A opportunities. And, you know, lo and behold, a couple of months later, they've actually used that, that new capital to buy a new dermatology asset from Holland Capital called uh, Moritz Kliniek, which kind of enabled it to, to enter the Dutch market for the first time. So there is definitely an argument to back that. You know, the the money raised from these continuation funds is being used to help growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Especially for assets like dermatology and uh, things that are considered perhaps kind of counter cyclical with veterinary. There's the humanization of of pets and all those all those kind of trends that are that are there. So that makes sense in terms of an argument. Before we listen to our interview with our, our special guest for today in the form of Travis Smith, any other examples you think it's worth mentioning um, of recent deals? Yeah, exactly. So another dynamic in, in M&A that we've got at the moment is, you know, there is a, a growing gap in valuation expectations between buyers and sellers. And a lot of that is hinging on a lot more due diligence going on to the amount that EBITDA is adjusted. Um, and there was a, a recent example where um, a deal fell through, which is is one of Triton's assets, Assembling, which is a, a Swedish technical installation company. And that was from Triton's 2012 vintage fund. So it was clearly coming towards the end of its life cycle. And our reporting found um, that the, the bids fell far short of expectations so Triton, rather than accepting those prices, has kind of has put the asset into a continuation fund. So again, that's that's kind of another dynamic behind all of this. Really interesting. Now it's time for us to hear from Travis Smith. So we're going to hear from Ed Ford and Sasha Gofton Salmon and Rachel and I will be back with you right after that. Ed and Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Harris. Thank you very much. Now, these kinds of GP-led secondaries deals, you'll both be aware, and um, I'm sure our listeners are very much aware too, that um, they're certainly kind of gaining interest and, and traction in the market. But how would you say the market is perceiving GP-led secondaries deals at the moment? Why are they growing in, in popularity? Yeah, so I think from the GP side, there's a real um, sort of acknowledgement these days that you can use the secondaries market to problem solve really in relation to funds. So it might be doing a um, continuation fund to maintain exposure to a particular asset or to raise hold on capital to, to further invest in that asset. It might be to give um, uh, LPs uh, a liquidity option ahead of a fundraise um, or, or any other sort of solution-based approach, really. So I think GPs are very much alive to the idea that, that this can really help them in, in whatever strategic goals that they're pursuing. On the buy side, so there's been a lot of capital raised to do GP-led secondaries and it's a really good way of getting exposure, perhaps, to trophy assets and, and um, you know, assets that aren't ultimately um, sold on the, on the open M&A market. From the seller perspective, um, also sellers are keen on these transactions because they can achieve um, early liquidity and, and lock in returns where they're, they're satisfied with those returns. Um, also, it allows them to, to manage their portfolios and their GP relationships in a more proactive um, manner. And so by being a seller in these transactions... And, and sometimes in response to regulatory or 
strategic changes, it allows them to modify their strategy. So they're also offering benefits to the to the existing investors who choose to sell in these transactions. So across the three different um, pools of people, uh, you can see the different motivations and all those motivations are certainly encouraging the popularity of these transactions. So I agree. And I think the only point probably to add is that um, on the LP side, it's a little bit more nuanced. So um, certainly there are some LPs who are a little bit more cynical about these transactions. Um, the majority certainly accept them and see the benefits of them, but um, there are sort of more issues from the GP, from the LP side rather than the GP side. So I think there probably um, is still a little bit of work to do to, to get all LPs sort of 100% on board with, with every single secondary transaction that gets done. Mm, interesting. So what kind of risks or, or downsides do GPs um, and potentially LPs as well need to consider or, or sort of uh, bring up in, in structuring one of these kinds of deals? Well, I think as Ed just said, um, some LPs aren't necessarily 100% on board um, with all of these transactions. And and partly that's due to the frequency with which these are occurring now. So LPs haven't traditionally been equipped to be able to review a series of liquidity options. Um, they had originally intended on having their say 10 year hold period um, and and they didn't expect to have to to really reassess until then. And so I think what GPs need to bear in mind to make this process easier for the LPs is to give them enough time to properly consider these transactions and have an open dialogue with their LPs so that these transactions don't come as a surprise. And there are US tender offer rules and, and the the ILPA guidelines on secondaries certainly suggest these timelines and and that's been helpful in that respect. So I would say it's very important to consider um, those timelines given the the capacity of the LPs um, to to review these more more and more frequent transactions. Mm, Absolutely. Ed, is there anything you'd add on that side? Yeah, I was just going to say really that I suppose the key risk on any of these deals is that you you annoy um, the other stakeholders in the transactions. So that's your, your LP basically. GPs are very, very keen to um, keep happy and indeed the sort of underlying management teams and so um, of the assets. And so I think when you're looking at the structuring and the considerations really, you're, you're always trying to um, chart a course which um, the secondary market calls it a win-win-win. So a win for the LPs that may sell at a, at a given price, a win for the GPs that achieves that strategic goal. and hopefully a win for the buyer because they come in at a price which um, they feel sort of aligned with the GP on and, and are happy to underwrite. And so I think all the structuring really sort of driven to, to those ends. Mm, absolutely. You want to be enhancing and, and building relationships rather than uh, potentially annoying uh, the parties in the, in the transaction, as you say. I wanted to ask you both as well from a kind of um, legal perspective. How does structuring a GP-led secondary deal differ from maybe a typical M&A exit process? Um, what do you take into consideration as an advisor involved in one of these deals? Yeah, I think the fundamental difference is that you're selling to a related party. So the buy side and the sell side are both under common management. And that really uh, focuses you on, on a few things, but particularly uh, alignment. So on a sort of conventional M&A exit, you, you have 100% misalignment. and you know, the, the buy side and the sell side, generally speaking, um, are pulling in different directions here. Um, you, 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 as I say, you're looking for that win-win scenario where ultimately um, uh, the, the secondary buyer comes in at a price that it's happy with, the GP reinvests at a price it's happy with, and the LPs exit at a price they're happy with. And so 
when you're looking at how that informs the structuring, I think there's definitely a, a focus here on, on alignment between the, the secondary market and the GP. And that typically involves um, things like any proceeds or any carry that's paid out under a transaction being reinvested into the fund. Um, those are obviously not features that you see in typical M&A. It also focuses uh, a little bit more on the diligence because, um, you know, given that alignment, one, one would think in, in all things being equal, you need to do less diligence on, on the underlying asset because the GP is sort of doubling down its own cash on that asset. So you, you typically might see a lighter set of reps and warranties. You might see um, less involvement with, with management of, of, of a portfolio company. And, uh, and you might see sort of features which, which make it look a little bit lighter touch um, in general than, than an M&A deal. There are, of course, other fundamental differences. So um, typically, these transactions have got some sort of um, option given to the existing LP base to reinvest in the buyer. That's not a feature you're going to see in, um, in typical M&A. And that also causes um, all sorts of, sort of ongoing governance issues because you've got not just the manager on both sides of the transaction, but, but of course, you've got um, certain LPs and investors on both sides of the transaction. As Ed mentioned, when you've got perhaps the same investors on both sides of the transaction where um, existing investors have chosen to roll into the buying vehicle, it makes WNI insurance um, a little bit more important. So you probably don't really want to find yourself as a GP in a scenario where your continuation fund is suing its existing fund um, where there's an overlapping investor base. Um, and so getting WI insurance on the warranties given by the selling fund to the buying fund um, can be a really useful tool. And certainly we're saying um, over the past couple of years that that product has become a lot more sophisticated um, and, and is, is able to help um, with a lot of these transactions and issues. And I suppose... One other thing we have to think about a little bit more carefully on these kinds of transactions rather than traditional M&A is, you know, is what we're doing a transfer? So obviously, if you're transferring an asset in a traditional M&A context, as Ed mentioned, you're selling to an unrelated party. But here, typically, underlying investment documentation doesn't necessarily consider these kinds of transactions to be a proper exit. And so you've got to consider um, on a case-by-case basis um, whether these transactions are um, a transfer under those underlying documents or not. And along with that, you should be thinking about speaking to your management team of your underlying assets to get their involvement and their buy-in um, and, and make sure that they are aware of um, what's happening as well. Um, otherwise, issues can end up uh, cropping up at the last minute, uh, which which can make the transaction a little bit less smooth. Mm, fascinating. So really a lot to a lot to consider and um, quite a lot of differences for sure from a kind of M&A, uh, M&A process. I wondered if either of you maybe wanted to expand a little bit on the kind of potential conflicts that can arise on, on the structuring side. I think you've both touched on it, but it would be interesting to, to get into a little bit more detail about that. Any kind of theoretical examples of, of situations potentially as well? I suppose the most obvious example is if you've got a, a manager, you know, also with its, uh, its stake in the existing fund, um, that existing fund is going to want to sell high. And you've got that same manager um, with its stake in the continuation fund, um, and it's going to want to buy low. So I suppose you've got that conflict just that necessarily comes from being on both sides of the transaction, uh, which is 
certainly the most obvious one. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. So it's actually on the buy side and the sell side, it's really the sort of main conflict. Um, and so you're, you're paying and receiving the purchase price. And I think that the sort of ordinary way that that's mitigated is both by getting a sort of LPAC conflict waiver. So typical fund governance requires um, conflicted transactions to, to be approved by the LPAC. And so that's required um, on, on a standard continuation fund deal. You also have um, sort of myriad conflicts really that, that flow down from that. And so if you're um, aiming, for example, to execute a transaction in order to give a portfolio company greater access to follow on capital, then then you need to think about how that's going to be structured. Um, I think that the simplest way of doing that is just requiring everyone who sort of ends up being an investor in or alongside the continuation vehicle to provide um, further capital and, and just invest pro rata. And inevitably, that can get a bit more complicated. You have certain LPs, um, perhaps a fund of funds, might, might not have access to, to additional follow-on capital because they themselves are outside of their investment period. And so you may well have a situation where uh, not all your LPs on on that sort of buy side can put more money in. So you run into conflicts around how you structure that follow-on capital because you've got some parties putting more money in and some parties not, then you need to dilute the parties not putting any more money in at a certain price. It's quite hard to be clear on precisely what price that should be. So um, perhaps you could just value the underlying asset every time you put more money in. And um, that's sort of it's quite a good conflict mitigant, but is quite administratively burdensome for, for the um, GP. And so you can sort of somewhat tie yourself in knots as, as to what the most appropriate way of doing that is. Equally, um, as a GP, you have got conflicts potentially with your own management team at, at the portfolio level. So, you know, the, the question as to whether you recut the, um, the MIP for the portfolio company on a go-forward basis um, obviously wants to be looked at on, on, on each case and a case of per case basis. But you're going to want to make sure that that is generating alignment between yourself and the management team and the secondary buyer and the management team. And yeah, that's a sort of real life consideration here. And then also in terms of the purchase price itself, you know, the, the GP has to think, okay, well, if I do this transaction, um, a GP led transaction rather than a, a traditional M&A exit, I'm getting ongoing fees from this ongoing transaction um, as opposed to, to a full exit. So they've got to consider that alongside also thinking what is best for its investors. Um, and then in terms of the, the price itself, I suppose when the buyer offers its price for the um, interests, the, the buyer almost prices in the ongoing economics of the GP and the continuation fund, which ultimately is then deducted from the the price that goes to the existing investors in the existing fund. So there's a conflict um, just necessarily there. And, you know, basically, if the sellers are still happy with that price, then they become sellers. And, you know, if, if and so it kind of works itself out by the operation of you can be a seller or you can choose to to roll and be a buyer. So I, I think that's how that one gets sorted out in practice. Yeah, no, really, really interesting points from, from both of you there. And what would you say is sort of next? What's the next stage for the GP-led deals? Quite a big question, but I suppose I'm thinking of in terms of what sectors of, and maybe types of companies might be interesting, particularly in the current kind of um, macroeconomic volatility that, that we're seeing. 
And also, you know, again, from a legal perspective, um, what might you expect to be coming next in terms of the, the structures of these kind of deals and, and the terms around them? Well, I suppose I went recently and, and listened to um, one of the, the caller webinars and the message from that was, what's next? More, more, more. Mm. So I think it was the Jeffries report from 2021 um, said that there is $132 billion worth of secondary transactions in 2020. One. Um, so I, I think that's something like a 250% increase over the last four years. So it certainly seems like more and more and more uh, is the right message. In terms of asset classes so far, we've seen a lot of private equity transactions, but I think that's going to expand into other asset classes. And already we're seeing more infrastructure and real estate uh, focused um, transactions, but you know they'll spill out into all of the, the asset classes um, in the usual way. And I think in terms of uh, strategies, um, we're seeing buyers emerge with different strategies. So rather than being a secondary player, there are now different different focuses on perhaps whether you're going to do an LP-led secondary or a GP-led diversified um, type of secondary plan or a, a GP-led concentrated asset plan and strategy. Um, and I think that then intermediaries um, are also, also expanding their capacities to be able to, to deal with all the different um, nuances coming out from, from those different approaches. And um, Ed, what's your view? Would, would you agree there? Would you add anything further? Yeah, absolutely. So agree with everything Sasha said. So uh, other couple of points that we're seeing. So we've got a number of clients who have um, sort of residual listed holdings in their vehicles now, and obviously listed markets have taken a bit of a hit um, hit recently. And so we're starting to speak to people about um, how do you triangulate that um, sort of 10-year hold period, the product funds are sort of generally speaking. Um, sort of held to by their LPs um, at that liquidity um, requirement that you're required to give your LPs and not wanting to sell at what might be the bottom or what people hope to be the bottom of the market on the listed side in particular. And so we're seeing people look at um, sort of term extensions or, or continuation vehicles um, that, are, that are really driven by that um, in particular, um, or sorry, I should say, or an alternative doing some sort of non-dilutive um, secondary financing. So rather than I'm selling 100% of your exposure to an asset in order to get open liquidity now, maybe putting some sort of preferred equity product in, um, which uh, provides some liquidity to LPs, but um, ultimately uh, doesn't mean that you, you forego any future upside um, if, if the share price of a listed um, stock does recover. And I also think that on the sort of primary fundraising side this year and, and next are pretty much fully loaded by, um, by a lot of very big GPs fundraising. And so, um, message from LPs, um, as we're hearing, it is very much that in order to re-up into next fund vintages, um, they, they do need liquidity um, because the uh, you know the, the books are really pretty well spoken for to some of those big GPs, and so um, we're definitely seeing GPs thinking can they structure some sort of tender or, or similar, and um, which which provides LPs with liquidity ahead of fundraise and, and effectively gets stapled in um, as an investment in the next fund. So. I imagine we'll see more of that in the, in the coming months. Mm, very interesting to hear how that links back to some of the trends we're, we're seeing at the moment. As you say, very well known how busy the fundraising market is with, with such big managers um, coming back quicker than ever. And yeah, there's the potential kind of uh, for longer holding periods as well. No, very interesting. It's been a pleasure having you, Ed and Sasha. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me. 
Thanks, Arius. Thanks so much for having us, Arius. So lots of interesting points there from Ed and Sasha. And we've heard a lot of discussion in that interview about the risks and conflicts of structuring these deals from the legal side. There were also quite a few interesting notes we hit on on how the GP-led secondaries market links to the current market and fundraising as well. Rachel, any key takeaways you'd want to highlight? Yeah, so I, I think the whole idea around LP liquidity is really interesting. And I think we've seen that it's an ongoing problem for a lot of GPs across all strategies. So, you know, not just private equity, but, you know, going into debt markets and all of that as well. Uh, this is, you know, driven by what we call the denominator effect. So there's been a fall in startup VC valuations and a uh, fall in public markets as well. And that has forced a lot of LPs to rebalance their allocations and withdraw money from their private equity strategies, even if you know they're particularly keen on increasing allocation to private equity. It's a bit of a weird dynamic. And you know, this is is quite obvious in the market. There's a few large cap private equity funds that have been on the road for nearly a year without a close when you know their previous funds were only taking seven or so months to hit hard caps. So clearly there's there's problems with raising money from LPs at the moment. And then those LPs, you know, they have to make a decision when it comes to these continuation funds, you know, whether they're going to take the liquidity option um, and not invest in this continuation fund, or they, you know, if it is a high performing asset, whether they do want to reinvest. Yeah, definitely. Capacity constraints from a kind of human team point of view, reviewing all these deals is a big problem. And then, as you say, the liquidity constraints, just the ability to be able to commit to, to primary funds is is also a reason why LPs may want more money back from their GPs when, you know, distributions are down on the uh, because of the exits market, as, as, you've, uh, as you've been saying earlier. What's interesting, actually, in relation to, to fundraising as well, is the fact that, yes, quite a lot of uh, even, you know, big brand names have been on the road for a while, possibly taking a hit. We're going to keep keep track of if people are, are meeting their targets or postponing fundraisers or all of those sorts of indications that things might not be going as planned. Um, but what's quite interesting is that secondaries GPs, what I'm hearing from the market is that they're not too concerned about LPs committing to their strategies. Some LPs have even expressed that they are still quite keen to commit to secondaries strategies because inherently they are diversified. They also produce good returns. And if we take a look at the fundraising figures from Unquote Data, in 2021, secondaries GPs have raised in Europe around 16.8 billion euros across 11 vehicles. And that accounts for around 11% of the overall market share. So actually, even though allocations may be down to private equity, Overall, secondaries GPs are, are very much still still there and still attracting interest. And I think um, I've noticed a particular dynamic as well, which is where you know people just used to raise secondaries funds, which was both you know LP led strategies and GP led strategies, which are actually quite different. But now a lot of the funds raising seem to be separating them out a little bit. Mm. So we're seeing GP led funds and LP led funds, which I think is a, a bit of an important market split. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, or I, I wonder if part of that is in response to the fact that a lot of secondaries players have left 2021 having deployed a lot in single asset 
GP-led deals and perhaps being slightly overexposed to those deals. Bear in mind, the economics are different on a GP-led, but ultimately your underlying exposure is, is one asset. Secondary strategies are meant to be inherently diversified. So actually, with so much activity on the GP-led side, it does make sense to potentially split them off. Uh, we've got people like ICG already doing this with a fairly concentrated portfolio in their large cap funds um, for, for these GP-led deals, as I understand it. Um, Pantheon as well, another name we could sort of put in there as having a, a GP-led strategy. So yeah, definitely more, more specialization and differentiation on that side to come, I think. And what else are you hearing from your sources, Rachel? There's obviously a lot of interest in uh, GP-led secondaries in particular, but are they are they here to say what's the market telling you? It's quite funny, actually. So some LPs have been privately quite vocal about how much they hate these continuation <laughs> vehicles, um, but most surveys point to you know at least a volume that's flat, if not slightly above last year. Um, but I'd like to end it this podcast with them a little bit of a funny quote a source said something something quite hilarious to me um which was that continuation vehicles are the spac of 2022 and we've all seen how far the market for spacs has fallen since the new year so we'll have to see how attitudes to continuations change over the next 12 months as well yeah i think that's going to be very interesting and uh listener will leave it with you to decide what you what you think of that comment I think then that's that's all we have time for on this episode of the podcast. But thanks, Rachel, for joining me. It's been a, a pleasure to, to have you on the pod today. Thank you very much, Harriet. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you in the next episode.